Welcome back to For the Defense. I'm David Oscar Marcus, and today we're going to be speaking to Rob Carey at Williams and Connolly about his representation of Senator Ted Stevens. Now, Senator Stevens was uh, the founding father, one of the founding fathers in Alaska. He had been a senator there for over 40 years and was running for re-election back in 2008 when he was charged in federal court for receiving gifts and not disclosing them on his disclosure forms. And so Rob Carey, Brennan Sullivan and others come to his defense and prepare for a quick trial right before the election. Unfortunately, the trial was riddled with prosecutorial misconduct. And we'll speak to Rob uh, in this episode about all of that misconduct, how it was uncovered, the lengths the prosecutors went to to convict Senator Stevens, and what happened after that guilty verdict and how it gets vacated. You also hear about Senator Stevens tragically dying in a plane crash. We'll also talk generally about what we can do about prosecutorial misconduct. I'll give a few stories of my own from my own cases. And it's a really interesting in-depth look at what happens in cases where the defense has the gall to fight and prosecutors uh, go to extreme lengths to get convictions. And for the defense, next. Okay, so I'm really excited uh, this morning for the podcast because we have Rob Carey on from Williams and Connolly. And Rob is one of the leading voices against prosecutorial misconduct. He's been fighting it for his career, has had some of the biggest prosecutorial misconduct cases, including the Duke Lacrosse case and the case we're going to be discussing today, the Senator Stevens case. He's even written a book about it called Not Guilty of the Unlawful Prosecution of U.S. Senator Ted Stevens, a must read for people who are interested in the Stevens case in prosecutorial misconduct and the like. So welcome, Rob. Uh, thanks, David. Happy happy to be here. And, and thank you for the work you're doing to highlight the important work that defense lawyers do. No, and, and it's great to have such a wonderful defense lawyer here. And, you know, we're talking today about the Ted Stevens case. Ted Stevens was, I think he was referred to as the lion of the Senate. He had been in the Senate for 40 years when the government went after him. And it wasn't going after him for bribes or misconduct that we typically see in political corruption cases. Can you tell us a little about what the case is about and give give us the background? Because it seems a little crazy that this was the subject of a prosecution to begin with. Sure. He was indicted 98 days before he was to stand uh, re-election for what would have been a fifth or sixth term serving the state of Alaska in the United States Senate. He was a former U.S. attorney in Alaska himself back when, when, when um, Alaska was just a territory uh, before it was a state. And what the, the, the case arose out of an FBI investigation of um, private prison construction in the state of Alaska. And while they were conducting that investigation, they uh, wiretapped a, a number of, uh, of uh, people. And one of the people who they recorded was a Alaska business person by the name of Bill Allen. And uh, Bill Allen was caught on tape talking about bribe, openly talking about bribing uh, state uh, senators in connection with things unrelated to Stevens. And he was caught talking about potentially killing uh, somebody who uh, was, was uh, 
who he had a disagreement with, which, which gave the, uh, the FBI incredible leverage to use against him. They um, confronted Allen, and he became a cooperator. And one of the people that he could cooperate against was his friend Ted Stevens, with whom uh, he was um, uh, helping to, to, to oversee the, uh, uh, the addition or a, a renovation to his house, along with a guy that, another guy by the name of Bob Parsons. And what happened is the FBI confronted him, got him to um, uh, cooperate against Ted Stevens, and they gave him an incredible deal. They uh, agreed not to charge uh, Allen's son with any crimes. Uh, that was the person he was talking about potentially murdering somebody with on, on the um, on the wiretap. They uh, agreed that they would not go after Allen's company, which is a company by the name of Vico, which had uh, considerable uh, government contracting. They gave him the possibility of no jail times for the crimes he committed. Uh, the ability to sell his company for hundreds of millions of dollars. And uh, there was one other thing that was, was lurking around at the time in Alaska, and that was it was rumored and reported in some media outlets that Bill Allen um, had sex with, with minor girls. So that's the leverage that the government had on him. And they used that leverage to bring a case against Ted Stevens. And the case that they brought against Ted Stevens was, as you point out, it was not one for bribery or extortion or what's called honest services fraud, the typical charges we see against government officials. Rather, it was a simple claim that Ted Stevens allegedly received renovations by workers from Allen's company on his cabin in Alaska, and he did not disclose those as gifts on the Senate disclosure forms. That was that was the, the allegation that they made against Ted Stevens. And so let me, let me just stop you there. In terms of a benefit to Stevens. I mean, I, I still don't understand what, you know, the big deal is. What what was he getting out of not disclosing? What was so important for not disclosing that on the disclosure forms? Well, with the even Bill Allen with all of his um all of his benefits would not was not willing to say that that he was bribing or that, that Ted Stevens had been bribed. But what they the, the theory that they tried to espouse at trial was I call it sort of bribery light. They they suggested that um, Ted Stevens had a motive not to disclose these renovations because Bill Allen was a was a um, a, a big figure in Alaska business and and he didn't want that disclosed. Uh, in fact, our defense and the, the the primary plank of our defense was that that Ted Stevens paid for the renovations. Uh, the renovations under the building permit were estimated to cost $87,000. The assessor for the, the, the taxing jurisdiction assessed them at $104,000. And Ted Stevens actually took out a small mortgage to pay for the renovations. And the appraiser appraised the value of the renovations at $115,000 to $123,000. In fact, Ted Stevens paid $162,000 for the renovation. So he, he paid approximately $40,000 more, $40, more than the renovations were worth under the most um, most generous uh, uh, estimate of what they were worth. So, so just so everybody's on the same page, we have a senator who's never been charged with any crimes, and of course, in his career, he's in his 80s. He's not charged with bribery. He's charged with um, not disclosing on his on the forms that the renovations uh, were were more of a benefit than he paid. It sounds to me that your defense is no. He he actually overpaid for the renovation, so there was no need to disclose. 
That's, that's true for sure. And we also had a, t a tremendous number of great character witnesses in the case. Uh, one that everybody would know is Colin Powell, former Secretary of State, uh, who uh, testified that um, Ted Stevens had a sterling reputation for honesty, that um, he's the kind of guy you take on a long patrol, hearkening back to, to, to Powell's days as an infantry officer in the, um, in, in the U.S. Army. Uh, Ted Stevens' best friend in the Senate was uh, Senator Dan Inouye, a Democrat from Hawaii, who testified that Ted Stevens was completely trustworthy. Uh, we even, um, Ted Stevens was good friends with, with um, then-Senator Joe Biden, or the, then-Vice Presidential Candidate Joe Biden, who we considered using as a, a, um, as a character witness. Uh, we thought it ultimately would be too much of a distraction with the campaign going on uh, as, as Barack Obama's vice presidential running candidate. But the, but the truth is, Ted Stevens had this wonderful reputation across both sides of the aisle in, in, in the Senate and had um, impeccable uh, reputation for being honest. And, and it was shocking that, that, that the prosecutors would bring this sort of charge against a man who, in addition to his years of service to the public as, as a U.S. attorney in, in Alaska and as the senator from Alaska, was a World War II veteran. And, and uh, I always found it with, with the number of World War II veterans growing fewer every year that they would go after somebody who served his country for so long, for decades and decades, uh, so faithfully. You know, we're going to get into the misconduct, obviously, and, and talk a lot about what happened, because I think that's one of the main themes of the case. But I'm interested in just the some of the background as well, which is typically, and I've represented politicians as well, they, the government's very careful about bringing a case during an election year right up to the election. And here they did the opposite. I mean, they brought it uh, right at the heart of the election. Couldn't, why, why did they do that? Was, it seems very odd that the government would do that. Well, it's, it's typically against DOJ policy to bring a case, especially a, a flimsy case that, that ultimately was not supported by any evidence in an election year. And, and they, the, the Department of Justice typically uh, tries to uh, avoid bringing cases that would have an impact on, on an election. And, and why they did it, I, I can't, cannot explain it to you. Uh, but it did, it very much affected the election. And, and um, uh, just to fast forward a little bit, uh, Ted Stevens was ahead by 1%. The trial lasted right up until a week, eight days before the election, he went back to campaign. He actually won on election day by 1%, but the early and absentee votes that came in during the trial cost him the election, and he conceded about three weeks after the election, uh, having lost by about 1%. It's insane. And, and we're going to get, obviously, into all of that. Um, so he was defending a criminal case while trying to run for the Senate. It's just it's hard to imagine that the government um, did that, but, but I guess they did. He was, and I'll, I'll give you one other thing. You, people may remember this was the fall of 2008, and we were in a terrible financial crisis at the time. And uh, it turns out that his vote was never needed on, on an important matter during the trial, but we were very concerned that he would be called to Capitol Hill to, to, to vote on something, and we'd have to, to, uh, to, to take a break from the criminal trial. That did not happen, but his attention would have been better spent in the United States Senate, where he was known as somebody who crossed the aisle was it was able to, to to reach agreement with 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 his friends on the Democratic side, and um, it's it was a terrible um, waste of of talent to have him sitting in a criminal courtroom, uh, five blocks from the U.S. Capitol, 
during uh, during a, a, a big crisis. And the case was not brought in Alaska, right? It was it, it, even though all the conduct supposedly occurred in Alaska, the renovations, um, the billing, all, the disclosure, all those things. The case was brought in D.C. Talk to me about that. Well, almost all the witnesses were from Alaska. The, the, the government technically had venue in D.C. because these Senate ethics forms, to the extent that they had, had, had proper venue at all, were, were filed in D.C. And uh, we, we um, tried to get the case moved to Alaska. Uh, we were not able to do so. I am quite confident that um, a jury would not have convicted Ted Stevens, who is really um, – uh, the founding father of Alaska wrote the legislation to make Alaska a state. You know, the, the, the airport's named after him there. Uh, I just can't believe that um, that he would have been uh, uh, found guilty in, in the state of Alaska. Now, one of the, the players you just mentioned, the judge denied the motion to transfer it back to uh, Alaska. The, the judge in the case is a pretty well-known figure today. Can you tell us about the judge? Yeah, sure. We had, we, we, we had the... Um, Privilege of appearing before Judge Emmett Sullivan, who uh, really fulfilled his duties as uh, as an independent judge uh, with with great um, dignity and and courage and, and intelligence and wisdom. And um, if he hadn't given us the opportunities to expose the Brady violations, the the, the, the disclosure violations that we're going to talk about. Uh, things may never have worked out as 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 they ultimately did for the senator. So uh, I am um, a, a big fan of Judge Sullivan and, and and grateful for the courageous decisions he made in this case that I'm sure we'll be talking about. He's really known as an independent figure. We've seen that now in the Flynn case. He doesn't he doesn't really fall in line on one side of the aisle or the other. He calls it like he sees it for better or for worse in each case. I guess. Yeah, I, I'd like to point out. I, I think you know he was a um, a superior court judge and a and a, and a D.C. appellate court judge, which is our local system here in D.C. Before um, uh, before um, he became a federal judge with with lifetime tenure, and he was appointed by Republicans to those positions. So he's actually been appointed by both Republicans and Democrats, which I think speaks highly to uh, to his character and his judicial temperament. No, for sure. For sure. The other thing I wanted before we get into the weeds of the case is to talk about, you know, how you represent a senator in a situation like this, Rob. I mean, you're part of one of the great firms in the country, Williams and Connolly. I think the greatest firm in the country. I used to work there, of course, so uh, no bias for me. But I think the greatest firm run by the greatest lawyers. It used to be Edward Bennett Williams, who's known as the greatest uh, criminal defense lawyer of the 20th century and Brendan Sullivan and you and others, how do you, when you get a case like this, put together a team, um, devote the resources? And in a lot of the podcasts we've been talking to, some lawyers um, are lone rangers. That's not Williams and Connolly's philosophy. You guys put together a, a big team uh, to defend someone. Yeah, well, first, let me say, I'm, I'm uh all the great things I see you doing, I'm very proud of you, and we're very proud at, at, at Williams and Connolly that you're uh, one of us and, and, and an alum of the firm. Uh, we um, we believe very much in teamwork, and 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 my one of my mentors at the law firm, Brendan Sullivan, is a believer in, in in teamwork and a believer that when we put together a team, he actually wants to hear from the youngest person in the room first because he he thinks that the young smart people. Uh, often will have insights that that those of us who have been doing it longer won't have, and uh, you know what 
what we did is um, we, we put together sort of a core, core group. There were three of us during the investigation. We were frankly surprised and shocked. I was the only one in town uh, the, the day that he was indicted. And the, the way the team sort of uh, developed is a lot of people just walked into my office and volunteered to work on the team. And, and uh, we eventually had 10 lawyers. We needed every bit of 10 lawyers. Uh, we went to trial in six weeks, which is unheard of. Uh, you mentioned Edward Bennett Williams. He used to believe uh, that, that a continuance or an adjournment or a delay of the trial was always a good thing. And um, the, the senator didn't want that in this case because he wanted to try to get an acquittal before, uh, before his election, which was only, um, only six weeks away. I'm, I'm sorry, it was, it was uh, 98 days away. Uh, so we went to trial. Uh, Judge Sullivan accommodated a fast trial. We had a, a, a truly speedy trial, and we were uh, off to the races. Let's find out what happens at the actual trial in For the Defense next. Before getting back to the Stevens case, I have my own infamous tale of prosecutorial misconduct in the Southern District of Florida. It was the Ali Shagan case. I represented Dr. Shagan. He was accused of being a pill mill doctor, and we believed in his innocence and were going to fight the case all the way. And so we were getting ready for a motion to suppress his statements. He made some statements um, where we believed he had invoked his Miranda rights. And so we were preparing to file the motion, and the prosecutor told me that if we filed the motion, there would be a, quote, seismic shift in the prosecution. I kind of laughed at him off. What, what was he going to do? He, my guy was already charged with 23 counts in federal court. What kind of seismic shift would there be? So we filed the motion. We litigated. We actually won. The judge found that Ali Shagan did invoke his uh, right to counsel and that the DE agents continued to question. They credited Shagan's testimony over the DE agents. So we left that hearing feeling pretty good because we had won the motion to suppress. Um, and shortly thereafter, there was a seismic shift. The prosecutor then added over a hundred counts to the indictment. And we were pretty shocked by what they did. And we fought back hard. I'll explain what happened to Dr. Shagan and more prosecutorial misconduct in that case at the next segment. But let's get back to the Stevens case in For the Defense next. One of the big pillars of the defense, you mentioned that, you know, you, he paid what it was worth or more than it was worth his good character. But the other sort of pillar plank of the defense was that he acted in good faith. And can you tell us a little about that part of the defense? Yeah, sure. So, so in addition to this great character evidence we had, we had what we thought was a piece of evidence that was, um, uh, as, as, as Brennan described it, speaks right to what was going on in his mind at the time. And that is, uh, I, I mentioned a guy named uh, Bob Persons, and I mentioned uh, Bill Allen. And uh, those were the two people back in Alaska sort of overlooking the, um, the, the, the renovation while, while the senator was back in, in D.C. Doing, doing the government's work. And um, by the way, the, renovate, the, the cabin, if you ever saw it, 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 it's a very modest cabin. He facetiously called it the chalet, which got which was in the present a uh, fair amount, but it's a very modest cabin on a gravel road in, um, in, in, in uh, Girdwood, Alaska. And uh, anyway, we had this great piece of evidence. Uh, it was a note dated um, back in October of 2002. 
uh, while the reno renovations were going on, and it was from Ted Stevens to Bill Allen. And the key words read, you owe me a bill. Friendship is one thing. Compliance with these ethics rules entirely different. I asked Bob Persons to talk to you about this, so don't get PO'd at him. It just has to be done right. End of quote. So what Ted Stevens was saying and what we argued to the jury is this is a snapshot into what he was thinking. He was, he was making, this, um, making this point that it has to be done right. I want to comply with the ethics rules. And of course, from where Ted Stevens sat, he paid $162,000 for something that was worth much less. And, 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 and we argued that, um, that he did comply with the ethics rules. I really like the, uh, the opening from the defense where, where Brendan says, the note just jumps off the page and grabs you by the throat to show you what the intent of Ted Stevens was. That's very Brendan-like, and and I think it really gets to what the defense is. Of course, it does. And and and, and um, you know the the um, in Washington D.C. the uh, the main um, uh, road around around D.C. is called the Washington Beltway. It's 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 Highway 49 or Interstate 495. This happened to be Government Exhibit 495. They tried to. They marked it as a government exhibit to try to embrace it. And we'll hear about that in just a minute as well. But we would argue, we would say, you can't forget it. It's, it's, it's exhibit 495, just like the Washington Beltway. It's the most important piece of evidence in the case. It's interesting. Um, and so the government is stuck with this letter, which shows good faith. Um, they have to combat it. And so what do, what's their response to the letter going into the trial? Do, by the way, do you know what their response is going in or do you hear it for the first time at trial? No, because uh, as, you, as you know, we get very little discovery. We don't get to take depositions in federal cases and, and, or in most state cases. And uh, uh, we were very much surprised by the response to this note at trial. I should say first that they really had sort of two big parts of their defense. First is they had or their, their, their rebuttal to, to our good faith defense. First. They had um, some billing records that we'll talk about a little bit from Vico that showed, in their words, down to the penny, how much time uh, Vico workers spent working on the cabin. And those amounted to $188,928.82. And, and I'll have to get back to that. But the main thing that they did, what became the key to their, 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 their case, their theme, if you will, was to have Bill Allen testifies as follows. They showed him the, the, the note, Government Exhibit 495, and they asked him, uh, and they did this right before a break for maximum effect. They said, did you send Senator Stevens a bill or an invoice after you received this note from him? Answer, no. Question, Mr. Allen, do you remember having a conversation with Mr. Persons after you got the note from Senator Stevens? Answer, yes. Question, what did Mr. Persons tell you? Answer, he said, oh, Bill, don't worry about getting a bill. He said, Ted, is just covering his ass, end of quote. And with that, the, the prosecutor turned to the judge and said, I think now would be a good time for a break. It happened to be just the time for a break. The best trial lawyers, you know, David, tried to use their best stuff right at the beginning or right, right before a break. As, as luck would have it, one of the jurors then got sick. And so this, this terrible testimony was, was, was lingering in the jury's minds for a number of days. It's, it's, what, what, what's so um, terrible about it from the defense perspective is they took what we thought was our best piece of evidence, our strongest piece of evidence, the evidence that we said, jury, you've got to rely on this. This, this, is, this is a snapshot into an innocent mind, and they turned it into a cover-up. 
And they said, this is actually not helpful to the defense. This is actually evidence of a cover-up. And they used the word cover 14 times in their closing arguments. And their theme became that Senator Ted Stevens was was covering his ass. That so was that was their thing. They didn't open theme. on this. They didn't open on. They the, did not. No, it was it was a, it was a complete surprise. It was a complete shock to us. So so and, every, and, go ahead. No, I was just gonna say when, when when we heard it for the first time, we thought this must be a fabrication. This must be something that he just came up with because we did have some discovery, and we'll get into the discovery here in just a little bit. And we we never we never heard or seen uh, this before. It's incredible. So just so everybody understands. Stevens goes in, your defense is, look, he acted in good faith. We can prove good faith through this letter that he sends um, saying, you know, bill me and I'll pay for it. Um, and and I, it has to be done right. It seems like a perfect uh, snapshot into his mind at the time and shows that he wants to do it right, as he says. Um, and the government then calls the witness who it's sent to and says, no, this was a CYA letter really undercutting the defense. You guys had never heard this before. Um, so you're, you're surprised at going into a break. I mean, what's, tell me how the defense scrambles and what happens after you hear about this. What, what do you guys do? Well, it's, 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 it's hard as you can imagine. And, and um, it, I'll, I'll tell you what we were really dealing with as much as we were dealing with themes and whatnot, but is, is we we're dealing with discovery issues that were coming up in the case. And, and, we should talk about that, but yeah. but I will say that the, the the strategic tactical decision was made that this is a fabrication. It was our belief. Uh, sometimes sometimes we as as lawyers are confronted with evidence that we don't think is true, but we decide to craft a defense that doesn't need to confront the falsity of what was said because we think that's in our client's best interest. We believe deeply that this was false testimony that was recently fabricated, and we set about trying to prove it. So how do you do that? I mean, let's talk about, first of all, you mentioned in a federal case, you don't get to take depots, the discovery is very limited. So what did you know at the time? And tell us, tell, tell us about a little, well, about what you're told about here, this guy. Here's, here's what we knew at the time. We knew that, this, that, that there was no evidence that Bill Allen had ever said this before. And, um, and that it, that alone makes it sound like a recent fabrication. But that's a hard cross-examination to do. It's hard to prove just because somebody hasn't said it before that, that it's not true. Uh, we will, um, so, so that's, 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 that's one thing we did. We tried to deal with what we had, the fact that he never said it before. The other thing we did, and it's something we do in every case, and, and it's a philosophy at our, or at least on every case I'm at at my law firm, is that we, uh, ask a lot of questions in discovery, and we try to get as much information as we can in the discovery process, which is very limited in, in, in criminal cases, but um, we try to get what we can. And the best, the, the, what, we're, what we're entitled to as defense lawyers, um, undoubtedly, is what's called Brady information, which is evidence or information that is material to guilt or innocence or punishment that is helpful to the defense. And we push and we push and push for that. And we pushed and pushed and pushed for it in this case. And, and I, I, we'll hear at the end that they had evidence that this was false, but we didn't get it until after the trial was over. So what did you get in trial? Because I know in reading about the case that you made a number of motions for mistrial saying, hey, we're just learning about stuff. And it seemed that the judge was frustrated. Of course, there's the big reveal about, about Alan's testimony. We'll get to about what you find out after trial. But there were other problems that you find out during trial. 
So there are kind of three big, there were lots of episodes, but there were three main episodes. The first is, um, I, I talked about those billing records, $188,000 worth of billing records. There was a, the, the person who had uh, one of the top two billers on that, if you will, was a guy by the name of Rocky Williams. He called me on the first weekend of trial. And he said, um, I want you to know something. I'm back in Alaska, but I was in D.C. for a couple of weeks getting ready for trial. And on the first day of trial, they flew me back to Alaska. And you should know that I didn't work on the project for the cabin nearly as much as the records say I did. Um, now, he also said, I have some health issues and I'm back here getting care from my, from, from my doctors. But we were immediately suspicious that he must have something helpful for us that, um, that the government didn't want us to hear. And one, of course, was that these, these records that they put on and said these showed down to the penny how much time was worked turned out to be false. So that was the first big issue that happened at trial. Judge, Judge Sullivan got very angry about it, but basically said, now you have the evidence and uh, you can um, put on the witness who put on these records to question whether, whether this person really knew what was in the records or not, which we did. So that was the first episode. Let me stop you about the first one before we go to two and three. So, so just so that I understand, there's a witness here who undercuts the documents that went on. And instead of making him available or telling you about it, they fly him back and you learn about it because he calls you? Exactly. That's exactly right. And Judge Sullivan was very angry about it. There wasn't a lot of precedent that allowed him to do much, uh, but he, um, uh, he, he was very upset with the prosecutors. The prosecutor said, well, we, we flew him back because of health issues. And of course, I was skeptical of that because we're in Washington, D.C. and Alaska has some fine hospitals, but, but Johns Hopkins is supposed to be the best, best um, by reputation, the best hospital in the world. It's, it's uh, 40 minutes from the, the, the courthouse in D.C. There are Georgetown's in D.C., George Washington, Washington Hospital Center. There was plenty of health care in Washington, D.C., and, and, and we smelled a rat. When they and, of that. course, they, they didn't disclose it to you anyway. You had to learn from the phone call by him. So, so regardless of that, they should have told you what, he, what the guy said. Exactly. And, to, and David, just we, we actually had him under subpoena. And that upset Judge Sullivan because he says, that's my subpoena, not, uh, not uh, it doesn't belong to the government. It doesn't belong to the defense. If, if a subpoena is issued, it's issued, um, issued by the court. And I, I should also say that, that I, I tried to interview Rocky Williams before the trial. He declined to be interviewed. Um, so this was the first opportunity we had to hear what he had to say. It's interesting that you mentioned that. I, I had not planned on asking you about those sorts of issues that come up, but people don't realize that witnesses are extremely afraid to talk to the defense before trial. They, they speak to the prosecutors, of course, FBI agents show up at their house and they, they talk to them. Um, but when we go knocking on their door, we, we're told uh, we won't speak to you. It's a, it's a huge disadvantage that people don't realize that the defense is under. The, the government has the ability to subpoena people before the grand jury. They, have, uh, they can legally pay uh, reward money. Uh, they can pay people for their time. Uh, all we have is uh, they can use um, uh, fear to get people to talk. Uh, all we have is our, is our charm and our personality. Yeah. Or we can call the, or we can subpoena, which is what we did with Rocky Williams. We can subpoena, subpoena them to show up in the courtroom and hear what they have to say for the first time in front of the jury. How does the prosecutorial misconduct really unravel the case? We'll find out in For the Defense next. Back to the Shagan case, you remember that they've added 100 counts. And what these counts really are is just each patient that Shagan had been seeing. And they argue in the indictment that he had prescribed 
drugs to them without any medical purpose. So we tried to call each of these patients on the phone and interview them, all of these witnesses. And as you heard Rob Carey say, we can't offer them money or their liberty like the prosecution have. So many of them are nervous to speak to us, but eventually many of them do and say positive things about Dr. Shagan. A couple of them wouldn't speak to us though, despite our efforts, despite my investigators' efforts to reach them. And so we were disappointed. We thought they were going to say bad things, but I was going into dinner one night with my wife and one of them called me on my cell phone and I took the call and he started peppering me with, hey, can't you pay me for my testimony? Won't you pay me? And of course, I was never going to pay the guy, but I just wanted to get off the phone and go to dinner and I told him I'd call him back. My wife said, hey, man, you got to get back on the phone with him and tell him you're not going to pay him. That's crazy what he was saying. You need to make sure he understands that. So I call him back, even though I was walking into dinner, and I tell this person who I thought was a neutral witness that I wasn't going to pay him. Fast forward to trial, he's on the stand, and he starts telling the jury that I offered to pay him money and that he had recordings of it. And I looked at him like he was crazy, so did the judge. The prosecutors, though, had their head down, and the next day, all of their supervisors all the way up the chain at the U.S. Attorney's Office came into court and handed me tape recordings of him and another witness who I had thought were neutral witnesses, but in fact had been signed up as confidential informants for the government to try to set me up and have me uh, pay them, which of course I didn't do. The prosecutors tell me at that point and the judge that I had been cleared but the judge was furious. Had this been approved by the U.S. attorney? No. Had this been approved by the Department of Justice? No. Had this been disclosed to the defense? No. And the trial gets into just absolute turmoil because of all of that misconduct committed by the Shagan prosecutors. I'll tell you what happens in the Shagan trial at the next cut-in, but it's a crazy conclusion. Let's get back to the Stevens case, which is also insane in For the Defense. Next. So issue number one that comes up is Rocky Williams. The judge is very angry, but um, nothing ends up happening. What What's number two and three? So the next issue is that um, late at night, while Bill Allen is still on the stand uh, at 11 32 at night, I get a fax from the prosecutors. And they tell us that their their obligations to produce discovery, remember we've been asking all along for stuff that's helpful to the defense, is ongoing. And that they uh, had recently uncovered some evidence that they thought was redundant of what they what, what they'd already disclosed, but in in a um, abundance of caution, they were going to produce it to us. And what was attached were two heavily redacted interview memos, commonly referred to, one is commonly, the FBI form is called a 302, it's called FBI form 302, it's an interview memo that the FBI does, that both of these disclose that Bill Allen told the government that Ted Stevens wanted to pay for everything he got. And why that was so amazing to us is because it was just the opposite of what they had disclosed before trial and what, what Bill Allen was, was suggesting in his testimony. And they'd actually provided a, a, a summary letter that purported to summarize what Bill Allen said, where they, they the, the prosecutors told us that um, Ted Stevens did not want to pay for everything. 
And this was just the opposite. And, and it went right to the heart of what, what mattered in the case. Amazing. Uh, we, we had additional motions to dismiss, additional motions for a retrial. Uh, we, we had a uh, big hearing where the, 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 the National Press Corps, at least covering uh, Justice Department activities, was there. And uh, the judge, um, again, declined to dismiss the case because there really wasn't precedent for him doing so. In fact, I think there was some precedent that actually may have prevented him from doing so. The argument being, well, now you have the evidence. Now you can use it. The case can go forward because you've got it. And, and, and what that case law fails to take into account is that we defense lawyers prepare right. uh, based on what we get before trial. And it's not easy to simply turn around your, your, your defense and, 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 and offer a new defense and change, change your cross-examination outlines and what you've been planning for in the middle of trial. And, um, but the case continued, but the judge did give us something else. And that is he, he, he ordered the disclosure of all grand jury testimony in the case and all 302s or interview memos in the case. And that gave rise to what I call the third Brady episode. And there was actually a lot of Brady information in there, but the, that, 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 that is sort of the easiest to understand in the time we have today is that another one of the workers who was listed on these billing records that showed down to the penny in the government's words, what um, the work that was being done that, uh, that, that wasn't fully charged. One of those workers was actually in the state of Oregon while he was supposedly spending hundreds of hours working on the chalet and that those records were just plain false. Um, once again, the judge ruled somewhat understandably given the precedent that we had those materials, we could use them use them in the, in the rest of our case, and the, the, the case then went to the jury. What's, what's the government saying as to why you're just getting this in the middle of trial when the judge is getting angry? I understand he doesn't dismiss, but he must have been challenging them. And what's their response? There, 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 there are, are pages and pages of, of testimony where the judge asked just those sorts of questions. And their response was, uh, I, I would describe it of, two categories. Number one is we're good people. We're trying as hard as we can. Number two, uh, you've got it now and you can use it and you haven't been harmed. And, and I, uh, no harm, no foul, I think was, was, was the, the, the main theme of the defense that, and we would not have done intentionally something intentionally wrong. It's amazing that the, you know, they use that defense. It always makes me laugh and they're prosecuting somebody who has built up a reputation of honesty and truthfulness, and they assume that you know the 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 non-disclosure on the form is made with bad intent. You know they they're quick to assume the worst of our clients, but the minute we uh, find them doing something wrong, they claim, well, "But we're good people." I could I couldn't agree with you more. You know, and and uh, I I noticed uh, pretty ironically that their opening statement, the first words out of their mouth was, "This case is about concealment." Um, it sure ends up being about that, just not about your client's concealment. That's that's exactly right. That's exactly right. So let's talk a little bit more about the trial before we get to the post-trial disclosures. I, I know when you represent someone like a senator or a businessman or someone who's as smart as Senator Stevens, there's they want to testify. Um, and Senator Stevens did testify in this case. Was there ever a question that he was going to or not, or, or that was always sort of he was going to get up there and test, talk about it? Well, the, the, the press speculated a lot about it, but, but uh, the, the truth is that he promised the people of Alaska uh, that he was going to testify in his own defense. And so that pretty much um, 
that pretty much sealed the deal. But I, I, I will say that I agreed with his decision he made. Um, as the trial unfolded, we, 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 had to, we had to try to take this, this, this document that we thought was so helpful that they'd turn around on us and try to turn it back around. So I, I, uh, I agreed with his decision to, to testify in the case. And, you know, when you have someone like that who's been a politician who's used to public speaking, how much goes into prepping him uh, and speaking to him? You know, I spoke to Hank Asbill. He's going to be coming up about the Governor McDonald case. It's difficult when you represent a politician. They don't think they need much help in in testifying. They think they can do it on their own, no? Yeah, I would say that the, the, the senator was very... Um, respectful and re receptive to, to the ideas we had and um, and and I, I think substantively was was a, a good strong witness the, the problem is he um, he got very angry and and after watching what he had watched and going through what he'd gone through after what he'd given the country I don't blame him for being angry but I, I think um, uh, jurors often don't react well to to to, to to defendants who who seem especially angry, and as I say, I don't blame him a bit for being angry, but it um, it it was um, it turned out to be impossible to control that anger. But as I say, I don't blame him a bit. I, no, I would have been angry too. Of course, I, I do. I did read some of it, and I I thought this was a, a great exchange and a great line by the senator, where the prosecutor said, "Weren't those messages sent just to cover your bottom?" And his response was, my bottom wasn't bare, ma'am. Uh, and, and what I read was that you could hear in the overflow room some of the reporters uh, sort of laughing at that response, not, not at the senator, but with him when, when he said that. I, I thought that was just wonderful. Yeah, he was very proud of that line, too. And, <laughs> and, and, um, I, um, and I don't think it was pre-planned. And, and I, I guess I will say, you know, he, he was 84 years old at the time. He was sharp as could be. I think maybe some jurors might have thought he wasn't so sharp at that point in his life, and 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 he was, um, and um, I, it obviously it obviously didn't carry the day with the jury. Part part of the defense um, was that he was not all over these financial records and wasn't deep into the weeds. I mean, my wife does all my uh, accounting and everything else. I mean. Is that a defense that that plays well, or or do people think you shouldn't be saying that your wife handles the records? Well, I don't know. They they, they certainly uh, in in their closing they certainly accused uh, the senator of um, throwing his wife under the bus, which which I thought was completely unfair. Uh, it's completely understandable that he has staff that fills out these forms, and it's completely understandable that she would have dealt with the financial records uh, that um, that um, with respect to this renovation and, and 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 paid the bills which by the way she testified and every every bill that was received was promptly paid in fact there was even one where Bob person said um, maybe uh, you know maybe you're being overcharged on this one and and the senator in an email quickly responded just pay it right and and, and but but when you're dealing with the cynicism that people have about some of our public officials, which I think is is unfair to people on both sides of the aisle. Oftentimes, uh, the the cynicism they have, along with the cynicism of using this covering his ass testimony 
and, and, and taking a perfectly good exculpatory document and turning it into something, playing on the cynicism and turning it into something evil, it, it was just too much to overcome. Right, right. And so the jury goes back and, and I saw that there were a bunch of problems with the jurors. One note says that one of the jurors is being having outbursts. Another juror leaves and doesn't come back. I mean, crazy stuff during the deliberations, Rob. So my recollection is that the first day, uh, there was a note that came back, I, I think on the first day of deliberations, saying that there were threats of violence in the jury room and, and they needed to take a break. And of course, when we hear that, we think, well, it sounds like a divided jury, right? Um, right. Sounds like, it sounds like this, there's a pretty good chance that this jury is going to hang. Um, a few days after that, we got a call from um, the court that one of the jurors had told the marshals that, that her father had died and that she needed to leave immediately. And that led to a, um, a, a couple of days of trying to find this juror. Uh, it turns out her father had not died. She'd actually left to go to the Breeders' Cup horse race <laughs> in, 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 in California. Uh, we, uh, it was in California that year. We ended up with a substitute juror. And um, you know, people might be interested to know that when you substitute in an, an alternate juror, the deliberations are, gonna, are supposed to start anew. It's impossible, uh, though, right? They, they, I mean, they, they, they clearly did not because it, it, in, in uh, very short order, they uh, came back with a guilty verdict. So the senator's convicted. He then loses by just a hair for re-election after being in the Senate all these years. I mean, there's nothing as a criminal defense lawyer worse than than losing a trial, especially one that like this where you think you're going to win, and one where you know that some of the evidence is fabricated but can't prove it. And then here comes a whistleblower, and. This is crazy. The story that happens is just unbelievable and crazy. I'm going to let you tell it. Yeah. So, so let me um, just correct you real quickly because Senator Stevens will want me to do that. Um, he was never sentenced, which means under federal law, he was never convicted. Fair enough. There's not a, not a judgment of conviction until he's been sentenced. And, and, and let me um, uh, say that Judge Sullivan never scheduled a sentencing in this case because he knew something was wrong about this verdict. And, and he gave us the room, as he, as he likes to say, it's after the trial was over when the real work began. And so one of the, the, there are a couple of episodes before it, but sort of a real game-changing event was we got a, um, a disclosure right before our new trial motion was due from the government. Uh, they said, in an abundance of caution, we're telling you about this. We don't, it's not going to have any effect on the case. But uh, there's a, a whistleblower, and we're trying to decide what our obligations are about this. And um, we had a, a, a motion for new trial was due. We were worried that, that the judge offered us more time that uh, if we wanted it. We were worried that somehow we'd be waiving our rights. So we went ahead and filed our new trial motion. And then several days later, we get a uh, heavily redacted whistleblower complaint in which um, an anonymous person says that he's been seen conduct that he believes is, is, is may be criminal and suggests that it's the uh, prosecution team that's committed the crimes, not the, uh, not, not, not the people who were being investigated. And that leads to uh, a month of around-the-clock litigation about whether this whistleblower complaint can be disclosed or not. We took the position and uh, that the whole thing should be disclosed. Uh, the judge ultimately decides uh, soon before, just about this time of year, actually right before the Christmas holidays, 
back in 2008 that he's going to disclose everything except the identity of of the whistleblower okay. and he's going to say what what the allegations are and the allegations were that um the ironically an fbi agent had actually received gifts from witnesses which is ironic in a case about wit, uh gifts um the um he alleged that uh we didn't know whether it's a man or a woman at this point, but the, the whistleblower alleged that moving Rocky, sending Rocky Williams back to, um, to Alaska was because a mock cross-examination went well and they wanted to get him away from the defense. Um, they, uh, he, he suggested that uh, there was an improper relationship between the lead FBI agent and Bill Allen, the, 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 the witness, and he the, 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 the star witness, and, and he suggested that uh, some of these... Um, disclosures that we were told during trial were good faith failures to disclose were actually intentional. Um, so right before the holidays, uh, Judge Sullivan ordered that that be disclosed to the public. Uh, we filed a new new trial motion. We still didn't know the, the, the we, we, weren't, we weren't allowed to disclose the name of the whistleblower, so we had to write it in ways that, uh, that, that covered his identity. That was, that was the judge's ruling as the year 2008 draws to a close. And so you file this new trial motion. I mean, it must have been, there must have been craziness at the firm with all this new information, verifying what you guys knew. You file, I can only imagine, I know what it's like when, when uh, you got to get something like this filed, the, the resources and everything else at the firm must have been uh, 150% for Senator Stevens. And you get this filed and you can't refer to the whistleblower. What does the government do in response? So um, right before their response to our new trial motion is due, and remember, Judge Sullivan has never even scheduled a sentencing in this case. Uh, they um, disclosed to us that they want to identify the whistleblower by name after all. And, and of course, a fair inference from that is they want to attack this person after arguing that they couldn't, they couldn't disclose it before because he was entitled to anonymous treatment because he's a whistleblower. They've changed their mind. And so um, we have a quick hearing before Judge Sullivan. Typically, the courtroom was full of press at, at every, um, every hearing. There wasn't much press at this one because it was just sort of put on the counter at the last minute. Nobody had a chance to get there, but we got down there. And Judge Sullivan um, said, well, I'll, I'll grant you permission to use his name, but I have one question for you. That is, and I, that is, when did you decide that this whistleblower was not entitled to anonymous treatment? Mm -hmm. And every prosecutor in the courtroom gave a somewhat different answer, and they couldn't give one that satisfied uh, Judge Sullivan. So he ordered that the Attorney General of the United States submit an affidavit or a declaration under oath wow. saying who knew what and when about, um, about the, the anonymous treatment of the whistleblower. Because, as he said, I spent all-nighters working on this, and you had an obligation to tell me. And, and by the way, this is not something that is probably critical to, to, to the merits of our case at this right. point, but it shows that if you push and insist on people doing the right thing, interesting things can happen. So um, he, um, that actually happened to be the week before President Obama was, was, was inaugurated. Uh, the Attorney General, they, the, the Justice Department got an administrative stay on the requirement that, that he submit an affidavit. And Judge Sullivan worked on Inauguration Day I've always imagined him watching the parade out his window on Pennsylvania Avenue while he wrote a new order that basically said, I, can't I cannot insist on an affidavit anymore 
But what I can insist on is that you produce every document about who knew what and when about the whistleblower treatment. And that's to be produced to me, and it's to be produced to the defense. Now, this is not something that, again, goes to the merits of the case, right. but uh, un, 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 somewhat unbelievably, the government then produces those documents to the judge, but they don't produce them to us. Hmm. And so we made a motion that, that the United States be held in contempt. We didn't go after the individual prosecutors, but the United States be held in contempt. And um, uh, there was a hearing. The, the government actually had a new prosecutor assigned to the case who I actually felt somewhat sorry for who was asked by Judge Sullivan, why weren't these produced to the defense? Um, he was not adequately informed. He didn't really have an answer. So the judge then held individual prosecutors, not the new one, but individual prosecutors in contempt of court. And that was a big break in the case. Let's find out what happens to the prosecutors and to the case and for the defense next. Back to the Shagan case quickly. You remember that the prosecutor said there would be a seismic shift, then added the 140 counts, then tried to set me up with tape recording uh, through witnesses, signing them up as confidential witnesses. There was tons of other misconduct in the case. Ali Shagan was acquitted of all 140 counts. It was a great, great result for Dr. Shagan and the right result. And then our hero of the case, Alan Gold, Judge Alan Gold said he wasn't going to let this go. It's wrong what the prosecutors did. And just because the defendant was acquitted, the prosecutor should be held accountable. And he held hearings where he wanted to get to the bottom of all the misconduct, called them as witnesses, looked into what happened, and sanctioned the government for our attorney's fees, about $600,000. The government appealed, the prosecutors appealed. They said that their due process rights were violated. And the government appealed and said that because the prosecution was initiated in good faith, even though all this misconduct occurred, they shouldn't have to pay because the statute only allows for payment if there is a bad faith prosecution. They argued that meant that the indictment itself had to be brought in bad faith. So we went to the 11th Circuit and argued these legal points. And in a very controversial two to one decision, the 11th Circuit found that because the indictment itself was brought in good faith, despite all of the bad acts later on, there was no recovery available for Dr. Shagan. And because the prosecutors themselves didn't have time to prepare for the hearing on the misconduct, that their due process rights were violated. Pretty ironic, considering what they tried to do to me and Dr. Shagan. So nothing happens to those prosecutors. The Department of Justice and the U.S. Attorney's Office don't have to pay any money. We couldn't believe it. So we asked the entire 11th Circuit, the entire appellate court, all of the judges to hear the case in a proceeding called an en banc proceeding. And many of the judges wanted to hear it and wrote dissents when the court decided not to hear it. Um, we then tried to take the case all the way to the Supreme Court. Justice Kagan recused because she was in government when all of this was going on, and you need a number of votes to get the Supreme Court to hear the case. We had tons of support from former prosecutors, former judges, lots of folks saying that the Supreme Court could, should hear this. There should be a remedy when the prosecutors engage in such bad faith and such misconduct, but the Supreme Court didn't take the case. Luckily, they couldn't take away Ali Shagan's acquittal. They couldn't take away the fact that he was found not guilty. And he's a practicing doctor again. 
We'll get back now to the crazy conclusion of the Stevens case and for the defense next. So, you know, you mentioned that it doesn't go to the heart of the case. And I've handled misconduct cases, too, where all we want is relief for our client. That's the number one thing. We push and push and push. And sometimes these things happen. And prosecutors don't understand that we're not trying to get them in trouble. We're, we're trying to get to justice for our client. And so here's Judge Sullivan holding these folks in contempt. It, it changes the, the, you know, the complexion of the case. But how do you get relief for Senator Stevens, which is, of course, the number one goal? Well, so, so look, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And I, I've been, as, as you know, I've been involved in a, a fair number of discussions and attempts to reform the system a little bit. And the one thing I always say is the word prosecutorial misconduct, we, we, we tend to throw around as defense lawyers, I think too much. And, and I'm, not, I'm not there to get anybody into trouble. I spend my life defending people. But what I want is a fair shake for my client. I'm going right. to push when I have to. And that's why one reason, and you know, in this case, it was a long time before we we alleged intentional misconduct in this case. It was a long time before uh, we we actually moved to have the United States, not the individual prosecutors, held in contempt. It was Judge Sullivan who held the individual prosecutors in contempt. But that was a big break in the case because what it did is it caused those individual prosecutors to be removed from the case and new prosecutors to be appointed and took take over. And, and uh, they, um, by all accounts, I... I I've often sort of imagined that they originally began, started their work by thinking they were going to defend this verdict because they represent the United States. But quickly, uh, it became clear to me that they were going to disclose everything they could to us. And, and every few days, we would get additional disclosures from this new, this new team until one day, actually, one of the prosecutors um, walked over to my office unannounced and, and brought me some, some materials and said, I want you to pay a special attention to certain pages of this. Unbelievable. And and so those prosecutors show how Allen was lying about that CYA um, discussion. And it really shows that the defense that you started out with was the correct and true defense. That's exactly right. So let me let me tell you what happened. So so um, <clears throat> Paul O'Brien, the, the 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 lead new prosecutor, showed me some emails between prosecutors in Alaska, prosecutors in Washington, D.C., during an interview of Bill Allen. And the, 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 the emails suggest that they shut down the interview because they didn't like what Bill Allen was saying. He said, uh, I know you're going to want to see the interview memo, which parenthetically by FBI uh, rules was required to be produced for such an interview. Trust me, we're looking for it and you'll get it as soon as we find it. And it turns out there was no, no memo was made, presumably because he was saying things that were bad for the defense, but there were some, some, some interview notes that two of the prosecutors had from that interview. And what he said is that he had no memory of, discuss, of the discussion with Bob Persons that supposedly said um, uh, about, the, about the note governing Exhibit 495. He had no memory of it at all, which is completely contradicted his testimony that uh, his clear testimony in court that uh, Bob Person said Ted Stevens is just covering his ass. So that 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 was really a game changer. And we know that um, when the government has failures to disclose, the big fight often turns on whether it would have made a difference or not. Right. This clearly would have made a difference. It clearly was material to the defense because it went right to the heart 
of the most important testimony in the case that everybody acknowledged was the most important testimony in the case, the CYA testimony. So uh, all the, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah go ahead. I, I was just say the notes also said that um, the workers uh, were drunk, they screwed it up, and that that, that uh, Bill Allen's uh, view of the work, the fair market value would be $80,000. This was something that Ted Stevens paid $162,000 for. So obviously groundbreaking evidence, evidence that would have made a huge difference at trial. Do the new prosecutors concede that, they obviously concede it's new, they produce it, but do they concede that it would have made a, a difference at the trial? So on the day, we, we, we set up a meeting to talk to them about it. Our view was this, is, this case is over. Uh, you, you might think, David, that we were related and high-fiving each other. Uh, in, in fact, it was just sort of sad, um, of pathetic. And, um, you know, we, we just couldn't help but think what we could have done with this if we'd had it earlier. But uh, on the day that we were to, um, to, to, to have a meeting with the government to convince them to drop the case, uh, we got word actually from a, a, another former Williams and Connolly colleague who is then working in the public defender's office back in my home state of Missouri called to say congratulations on the on the Stevens case. And my reaction was, what are you talking about? And he says, it's all over national public radio. Nina Totenberg has is, is, is announced that they're going to drop the case. Wow. And that's how we found out. <laughs> and um, I, I, I talked to, um, by, by 9.30 or 10, we had talked to the prosecutor who confirmed it was true. Uh, to his credit, he says, look, this is not, we were going to tell you today, this is not how we wanted you to find this out. Um, it, it, this was beyond, beyond our control. But um, that's, that's what happened. And so uh, it was actually April 1st so um, of 2009, trying to make sure it wasn't an April Fool's Day joke. The case <laughs> was being dropped, but, it, but in, in fact, it was being dropped. So some justice, but of course, Stevens had lost the election. And you know if this had been disclosed earlier, may have won, and there may not have even been a trial. But in any event, um, some justice comes but the case isn't over at that point. There's all sorts of investigations into the prosecutors, what happens. So, so what happens with those investigations? So there are two big investigations. First of all, the Department of Justice's uh, Office of Professional Responsibility conducted an investigation. Um, in addition, the judge said that he did not believe he could trust DOJ to conduct its own investigation. So he appointed a very well-respected, legendary DC trial lawyer named Hank Schulke to conduct his own investigation. And those investigations took uh, more than two years to complete. In the meantime, the senator tragically died in a plane crash. Oh, man. Um, in, uh, during that interim time period, one of the prosecutors, while being investigated, tragically committed suicide. Mm. Uh, it, was, um, it was a rough time in a, in a lot of ways, but at the end of two and a half years, uh, the Schulke investigation and the DOJ investigation uh, were, were made available public. And uh, David, you might not be surprised to know that it revealed a lot more uh, information favorable to the defense that we didn't know, certainly during the trial, and we didn't even know when the case was dismissed. So what happens to those prosecutors? Do they get charged with crimes? Do they uh, get disbarred? What happens to them? So uh, nobody... So So... Uh, Shulky was investigating whether criminal contempt was appropriate, and he concluded that though there were what he called systemic concealment of favorable information to the defense, 
he concluded that there was not an order that was clearly violated and therefore criminal contempt was not appropriate. So that takes care of really the criminal charges, I, I think. The Department of Justice investigation um, more or less cleared some of the prosecutors. Of course, they, they made no findings about the one who had committed suicide. And then with respect to two of the prosecutors, they, they uh, found that they in, engaged in reckless uh, misconduct and uh, um, suggested that they should be suspended without pay for 15 days in one case, 40 days in the other case. However, because DOJ didn't follow its own rules in, in, in imposing that um, uh, discipline, uh, that was actually overturned by a judge later. So, the, the, so um, there was no, um, no discipline, no, no repercussions for the prosecutors. It's just so insane because this was a case about disclosures and being transparent. That was the theory of prosecution. And we talked about this earlier. You know, when the prosecutors do it and and there's findings that they intentionally, the whistleblower said intentionally uh, withheld it, people are so careful not to find that they were intentional, so careful not to impose sanctions, so careful not to go after them. Whereas the opposite is so, you know, is true of our clients. It's 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 a weird uh, way to view it. So let, let me say this. I, I um and, you know, I was sort of taken, um, uh, I listened to your podcast with Roy Black, it would have been in the last season. And, and, you know, he talked about how hard it is to be a cop sometimes. I acknowledge it's not easy to be a prosecutor. It's hard. It's hard to pick out. You, you may, you know, I, I think we were pretty transparent in terms of what we thought was favorable to the defense in this case, but, but sometimes prosecutors are guessing. So it's, it's, it is difficult, but but there's also a double standard that that especially right. in white collar cases I think applies to the people we represent and 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 uh, prosecutors get the benefit of the doubt and in in some cases that may be appropriate, but but I I, th I think our clients often do not get the benefit of the doubt often enough. Why don't we just have a system where the government has to disclose all reports, all grand jury information. What's the downside to forcing them to do that? I think people would be shocked to know that we don't get all of this stuff in trials. Yeah, well, look, look, I um, I try civil cases and I try criminal cases, and it's you get everything in a civil case and you get almost nothing in a criminal case. Or I shouldn't say, um, but, but you, you don't get nearly as much in a criminal case. And I have long advocated for a rule of basically open file discovery where you, you get the information that, that you need to defend the case and, and it would eliminate a, a lot of this fighting that we do about what we get and what we don't get. And, and I think it'd be more fair and I, I think anybody who's given it a lot of thought thinks that that would be a, a more fair system, more consistent with what people think is, is fairness. I suppose on the other side of the coin, um, Civil litigation is very expensive because there is so much discovery. And a lot of times in our white collar cases, you know, I'll have um, lawyer, you know, court appointed lawyers come up to me and say, well, you know, thanks a lot. Now I've, I've got, you know, a million and a half pages in this case. And I can't possibly get through them because because the because the advocacy you've done for more discovery in cases. So that's 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 a problem. And my 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 only, I think, fair answer is that we need to devote the resources and the technology to allow people to get through the all, all the data we have. Um, it, you know, in this world, it's not just white collar crime cases that are going to have lots of information. So-called blue collar or, or, or street crimes or, or, you know, more traditional crimes are going to have a lot of information too, because the, there's so much 
available from the Internet of Things and, and so much data that's harvested that, that could be used for prosecution and for defense. Rob, you know, you, you've been such a leading voice for reform, obviously, with the Stevens case and the Duke case and other cases and trying to get new laws, new provisions in place, new discovery rules. It's we just had the passing of the Due Process Protection Act. Um, can you tell us a little about what that act is and, and does it go far enough? Yeah, sure. Remember what I said about um, Hank Schulke finding that there wasn't a, a order that was violated and therefore criminal contempt was not appropriate. So um, Senator Sullivan from Alaska, in honor of Ted Stevens and Senator Durbin from Illinois, a Democrat, and uh, also in honor of his friend Ted Stevens, co-sponsored a bill called the Due Process Protection Act that requires that there be a court order, order in every case and a model order in every, uh, every federal jurisdiction uh, requiring the disclosure of favorable material evidence to the defense. And that was um, passed on, in a voice vote in the House, a voice vote in the Senate, uh, with bi bipartisan support and, and importantly, uh, with the support, um, uh, or at least the non-objection of the Department of Justice, which traditionally the Department of Justice fights against any sort of uh, criminal justice reform or, or at least discovery reform they have as long as I've been practicing law. And this was a, um, a step in the right direction 11, 11 years after the Stevens case, but um, I'm, I'm appreciative of the bipartisan efforts that were made to, um, to, to take a step forward. We still have a ways to go, though, in getting uh, more open file, more disclosures, and and less uh, hiding of material. I, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, um, information is 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 what you need, and I, I um, you know, um, I, I'm a big fan of of Roy Black, who you had on uh, on on a podcast, and I was once on a panel with him where he he said, well, one of the few advantages a criminal defense lawyer has is is the ability to surprise the prosecution mm -hmm. and not disclose which, what it is you're going to say. And therefore, I'm not so sure about this discovery stuff. That's, that's his attitude, and, and, and um, God bless him. He's had a, had a great career, and, and at least that's how he's won a lot, a lot of his cases. My attitude is, that is a little different. Uh, I believe that the truth should come out, that, that, that um, we need the information, we need all the evidence to, 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 to try the case and defend our clients. And there's no greater gatherer of evidence than the FBI or the police. We just don't have the resources as defense lawyers to do ourselves. And, and I'm actually willing to disclose more to the, to the government in terms of what my defense might be in order to get that information. And I'm also willing to, um, to, um, to, to, to provide more information myself consistent with the, the, the Constitution and the attorney-client privilege. Um, if, if it's going to mean that the system gets more information in order to get, get the, the correct results uh, more often. Well, you got the correct result at the end of the day for Senator Stevens. As he said, he was never convicted, never sentenced. The jury verdict was overturned. And so unbelievable job and, and great case. And I just wanted to thank you so much for coming on and talking about it. It's, it's really a great legacy that you have uh, have for fighting against prosecutorial misconduct, Rob. Well, thanks. It's a, it's a um, pleasure is not the right word. I, I, I promised Senator Stevens I would talk to this anybody who would listen about this case, and and uh, and and you you've been attentive, and and I I hope um, getting the word out will help other people. Thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, David. Thanks. 
It's so important to get the word out about prosecutorial misconduct because nobody really thinks it's an issue, even though it's a monster epidemic in the federal and state court systems. In cases, in the few cases that go to trial, there is so much uh, and so many examples of misconduct. And so it takes cases like Stevens, like Shagan and others, where we can expose it and try to figure out good remedies and how to fix it. The first thing we need to do is have punishments for when this happens. And the second thing we need to do is have open file discovery. But in any event, uh, Ted Stevens never was convicted. Ali Shagan was acquitted. And we need to keep pushing back against prosecutorial misconduct. I'll see you next week in For the Defense.